saying before, brothers and sisters, that we are going through Matthew, and we closed off Matthew uh, chapter 5 in this Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we closed off at verses 31 and 32, but just a brief recap of what has happened in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a very familiar or common, perhaps, uh, portion of Scripture. Maybe you're very familiar, you've heard people talking about it. And as you read through um, five, chapter 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, there's many verses that are, are well known. Um, verses like, you will know them by their fruits, um, the Lord's Prayer, the Beatitudes, which is at the beginning. But essentially what is happening is that Jesus, like Moses who went up Mount Sinai, received the Ten Commandments from God for the people of God. Jesus has gone up and sat down on this mountaintop primarily to, to teach His people the heart of God, to teach His people the law of God, and to show them how pretty much every teacher that was there at this time, that was teaching His people at this time, were not interpreting the meaning and the applications of the law as God had originally intended. And it's important to view a couple of verses to help us think about this again um, in verse 17 of chapter 5 we have these words do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them and then he goes on in verse 20 to say unless your righteousness surpasses or exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So we know that Jesus has not come to abolish the law. But I want to turn your attention to the book of Ephesians at this time, briefly, just to look at one verse in particular. Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Christians in Ephesus, starting to unfold for them how this old covenant has, how Jesus brings us from the old covenant into what he calls himself the new covenant in his blood. Remember now Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law. I want to read from verse 14. Through 15, For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two one, that is Gentiles and Jews, made them one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And this is how he did it, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Now if you're thinking immediately, that seems like a contradiction. That's good, because we need to think about this carefully. He continues, His purpose was to create in Himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. By abolishing in His flesh, verse 15 again, by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. It's important for us to understand that in Jesus fulfilling the law, as he's going to teach us here what the essence of the law is, what he is actually doing is 
putting aside the expression of the Ten Commandments. There were 613 or so daily laws for life. And all of those 600 plus laws were basically applications of the Ten Commandments to each different area of life. God was so kind that he didn't leave them guessing, well, well, how should I live if I woke up this morning and it's Tuesday and I'm from the tribe of Levi and I'm from the line of Aaron and so I'm part of this family of the priesthood. How should I live? He gave them specific regulations to understand how to live their life. But Jesus is now showing us in the Sermon on the Mount that in the New Covenant, there's no longer this, this need for all these different specific regulations. And that it's always been about cutting to the heart of the person. God is not pleased just with outward acts of religiosity that are done well. But He wants to see that our hearts are shaped after Him. So, this is going to be part 3 as we, as we start in verse 33 today. And work our way down to the end of chapter 5. This is going to be part 3 of the same theme. Living as citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. So now I'll read verse 33 on to the end. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you or slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. A brief prayer once more. Father, please help us to understand what you're saying to us. And in the various ways that there could be so many different applications of these truths to our lives. While the truths themselves are fixed. Help us to understand the truth of your word and help us and give us hearts that desire and have the strength to apply these truths in the different ways that we need to in our lives as you alone know and as you alone can do. 
So once again, I ask you to guard me from error and to help us now to be shaped by your word for your honor and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So as we, as we continue, this again is called, the sermon is entitled, Living as Citizens of God's Heavenly Kingdom. And this is the third and final um, sermon with that focus and theme in chapter 5. And I have three points based on the three divisions that God himself has given us here, or the, the interpreters of scripture have wisely put together. And the first point is this, God wants us to have hearts of integrity. Perhaps you see verse 33 through 37 in your Bible, it might say something like oaths. And so the first point is this, hearts of integrity. Secondly, verses 38 through 42 is the second point, hearts of mercy or hearts of peace and mercy. And thirdly, hearts shaped by God's grace. And that's the final point in the chapter. So let's look at point number one, hearts of integrity. Again, as I mentioned, God's goal in sending Christ and in giving his law to his people and giving his word to his people is to conform a people in his own likeness, in his own image. This is what he did in the very beginning with Adam, is it not? He made Adam and Eve in his own image. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he made them in his own likeness. And sin, once it entered, by their willful disobedience and doubt of his word, sin has corrupted that image. In other words, we are still people made in God's image who have a dignity and and worth and value. We're all equally made in God's image. But the danger of stopping there is that we'll miss an important diagnosis that God has also given, which is that we equally share in a tarnished image because of sin. And it's a problem that we can't fix, which is why Christ, in His fulfilling of the law, is taking so much time to teach the heart of what God was really trying to show His people and what He's trying to show us today, I think. So God's purpose here is to conform us to His own image, to remake us after Christ, who actually is perfection embodied, who lived a perfect and righteous life according to all of God's law. He's the only person who could actually stand when He said, to the Pharisees, remember once a, a prostitute was brought, um, caught in adultery, a lady caught in adultery, and then Jesus said, if anyone is without sin, the one who has no sin can cast the first stone, and they all walked away. And then he told her, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. Jesus was the only human who could actually stand and say, I don't have sin. And instead of casting the stone, in that case, he shows grace. But what is God really getting at in these verses here, in this law, concerning um, oaths and, and, and letting your yes be yes and your no be no? He's trying to show us that in shaping us after His image, He wants us to be consistent in our character and in the things that we say, in the commitments that we make. In fact, last week we closed with verse 31 and 32. It's not a comfortable topic to think about. 
but it's the subject of divorce and remarriage. God is not saying that we are not permitted universally to enter into any oath whatsoever. In fact, it was actually a godly custom and still is today to enter into marriage with a certificate, a type of oath, and, and even to speak out and make oaths and vows to each other in a ceremony. In fact, they took marriage so seriously that um, there was a, a period of betrothal. And to, to break away from that betrothal, which means engagement, simply put, to break away from the engagement, you had to offer a certificate of divorce. And Jesus told us how seriously God takes that covenant. He said that there is one exception for divorce, to present that divorce certificate. And it is the grounds of sexual immorality, or the, the word that, that that sexual immorality comes from is, the, is a Greek word called porneia. Does that sound familiar? Porneia. It's where, where the word pornography comes from. Right? And the same word was used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to adultery, fornication, incest, prostitution, and by extension, homosexuality and bestiality. And the amount of sexual corruption that we have in our day didn't exist. That's why they didn't talk about things like the LGBTQ, etc. But it would apply to that too. And the purpose of God showing us how seriously he takes it is because that is the most valuable or the most important human covenant that we can make. So God, in, in teaching us here about how seriously we should take swearing and oaths, he's not saying that we're not permitted to have an oath. But what's important is that we let our yes be yes. Think about it this way. If I go into court and I put my hand on this Bible... Is there any mystical, spiritual, or supernatural power by me touching the elements and the materials of this cover that can make me be more committed in my heart? No, absolutely not. Right? There's nothing powerful about the elements, the trees that were cut down and made into paper that make up these Bibles. The power of the Word of God is not in this substance but is in the substance of a right understanding of the truth of the Word of God. And if a person is not committed in truth, putting your hand on the Bible adds no value to it. Right? And what was happening was that the Pharisees were trying to avoid breaking the third commandment. You know what that is? Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. And the ninth commandment, do not bear false witness. Not just about your neighbor, but in general. So these are some of the ways that those types of commandments were applied. So instead of swearing on God, some of them would say, Oh, um, well, I swear on Jerusalem. Or I swear on this other thing. And you know why people make faulty swears like that? Make faulty oaths? Because they're not committed in the heart from the time they open their mouth. God is saying He wants us to be people of integrity. People shaped by truth. And this is so important in the age we live in. The idea that truth is relative as opposed to objective and fixed and absolute and unchanging based on ages or life experiences. Right? God wants us to be people who are consistent in our character. 
and in our words. In fact, again, this is, this is something that God himself exemplifies. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, we see that the very foundation of our salvation rests before time existed and was played out in time by an oath that God himself made. This is what it says, Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose or his intentions, he guaranteed it with what? With an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, we who have run to Christ in faith, we might have faith, we might have strong encouragement, excuse me, to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a a person who we have no family history about. He wasn't an eternal being. But he was a person who was a priest before Abraham and and the entire Mosaic system was set up. So Abraham actually paid tithes to Melchizedek, to this priest who we have no account of. We don't have an account of his birth or his death or his family line. And he's saying that Jesus has an ongoing priesthood. The same way that the curtain was torn from top to bottom after his crucifixion, he has done away with that old covenant system. Remember what Ephesians 2 says in terms of its regulations. So the expression of the law now can come out in a multitude of different ways. But the essence of the law should be understood as the same. He wants to have people who are trustworthy like him. Those two unchangeable things there in Hebrews 6 are referring to the nature of God and his word, his promise, his oath. And he's saying he wants us to be consistent like that. Does that make sense? And so that's the first point in regards to oaths. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. There's nothing that adds strength to your commitments. We are committed or we are not committed. We are being a people of integrity or not. So we have to be a people that pray that God would help us to be shaped in this way. But secondly, we see that God is showing us through Jesus' teaching here that he wants our hearts to be shaped by mercy and peace. Look again at verse 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, in Matthew 5, excuse me, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay. The word strikes there, which says slap in some translation, right, is a, is a word that, that is, I think it's pronounced rightly, rapizo. 
It's the Greek word which refers to, okay, get this point now, a single slap. It's not talking about someone coming to you with their fist balled up to pound you up. Okay? So now, here's something that happens when we read some of these teachings from Jesus. The first thing we start to do is we go into defense mode. Now, wait a minute. Let's talk about what he can't mean. No, listen. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Not go get a hammock and lie down on Seven Mile Beach. If you look at his life, you do not see your best life now, as one author has written a book entitled. No, Jesus is saying, those who want to follow me will face hardship. But he's not saying self-defense is wrong. This word rapizo, which refers to an open-handed slap or sometimes a backhand slap, was a form of disrespect or dishonor. So you're in the midst of a disagreement and you're arguing, you're, you're not trying to get into a fight. And very often this is what would happen in this culture. The person who rapizo, who, who slapped, would just do one slap. They weren't trying to beat you up. They were just trying to publicly shame you, disgrace you. Now let's be honest, if someone does that to me or any of us, we're going to want to jump into self-defense mode. But Jesus is actually saying what he's saying here. If you can tell that a person is not trying to go beyond that and to destroy you or beat you down, don't return blow for blow. There's literally no other way to interpret that. And we'll get more into why he's saying that. Let's look at the next verse. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. All right, this is referring to a wrongful accusation. Like if someone wants to take something that you know is yours. And, and here's the thing. Again, God's law is originally intended to make sure that the penalty fits the crime. So let's just look quickly at the, the first part. Eye for eye. Right? God hates imbalanced scales. An imbalanced scale is a symbol of injustice. So what he wants us to see here is that his laws were designed to execute proper justice. Not imbalanced justice. But also not vengeance. If someone was to literally cut out someone's eye, if they were doing things the right way, they would not take it into their own hands, but with more than one or two or maybe three witnesses, the proper justice would be taken out an eye for an eye. Because again, God is seeking true justice, not vengeance, and not going beyond, right? The penalty must fit the crime. But Jesus is saying it's even more than that. This is in the context of what it means to, to love your neighbor. Jesus is teaching us here that if someone wrongly takes some of your belongings, instead of harboring in your hearts, hatred, a judgmental, vengeful spirit towards them. Show them what God's love is like by continuing to say, I can love you. In fact, you look like you need a cloak. Here, take this too. Let's be honest. This is supernatural love. This is not a, a normal, regular, you know, initial instinct kind of love. That's what Christianity is. It calls us to love in a way that God loves. And we'll get to that in a moment. 
And then look at verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is all to be understood as well. It's in the context of Rome. Remember, the, the Jewish nation at this point had been ransacked time and time again. And they're currently under the Roman rule when Jesus is born and when Jesus is teaching these things. So he's saying if you are a servant, perhaps a servant of a, of a Roman um, guard or someone that, that has you as their servant and they're misusing you. They're saying, oh, you, you know, go an extra mile. Here, oh, that looks really heavy. Here, let me put something else on that. Show them that instead of becoming bitter towards them, you're actually going to be a good servant and you're going to take it even further. You're going to do more. You're going to continue to serve them. And I think the initial response that we all have in this situation is, I don't know if that's right. Again, we have to be careful when we feel this need to seek justice. We are sinful human beings. Even Christians, everyone as a human being has at least one nature. That is a sinner. A Christian is a sinner saved by grace. And so we still have that sinful nature. And it takes only a millisecond to move from the category of genuinely seeking justice to becoming vengeful and wanting to get more than what is rightfully deserved. This is why churches, especially in the year 2022, and individual Christians have to be very careful jumping on the bandwagon of things that are classified like social justice movements and things like that. <coughs> Beware. Your heart is deceitful. Our hearts are deceitful. And we, we need to understand that as Christians, we're not to be shaped primarily by justice, but by mercy and peace. Now, God is the ultimate judge, which means He will have justice. He's watching what we're doing. He's watching when injustice is done to us. And He's created a justice system, which is not perfect. But it says in Romans 13, for example, that the sword has been given to the government to execute justice. So there are means by which we can seek proper justice. But the point here is this. We are to trust that God is both sovereign and good, that He's right there in the midst of our situations, and that He has a good reason for why we're in bad situations, and that He can help us if we look to Him and, and plead with Him to have a godly attitude that will actually do more good for the person who's wronging us if we continue to have that godly attitude. Our goal is to win people over. And that's why in verse 42, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the, the one who wants to borrow. We also need wisdom because the purpose is to do good to others. So if there's a person who is strong, strongly struggling with or, or obviously addicted to certain substances and they want to have $5, it's probably best to not give it to them because you're not going to be doing good to them but helping them continue to harm themselves. So perhaps a bottle of water with a little conversation and reasoning would be a wiser decision. And this is not saying that, that you can't help people in need, but people who will harm themselves further by receiving money, for example, or people who are just genuinely lazy 
and have found loopholes for how to live off of government systems or naive, kind people. They don't need to continue to be helped in that pattern of life. So there's, there's wisdom that we have to, to have when we're seeking to apply these things. But if there's a person who has genuinely found themselves in a bad situation, we are called to serve them in love and to help lift them up and to help them get through. Here's, again, the ultimate thing that we have to keep in mind. This is what Christ is aiming at. That our hearts and our attitude would, would not be vengeful, would not be judgmental, and that we will go the extra mile to serve others, even if they've wronged us. This is exactly what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Is it not? And so, this is especially difficult, coming back to the whole dishonor and disrespect and shaming of a slap, perhaps, or you know, losing a, a case that you should have won. This is particularly difficult in an age where we are being told from every direction that the first and most important thing is that I have rights. I have rights. And I demand that my rights be upheld. Did Jesus not have rights? Jesus, the Lord of glory. It's ironic that you, you read that, Elder Tommy, at the beginning, uh, the Philippian verse, verses there. What did he do? He laid aside access to his rights as the divine son of God for the purpose of serving us. And when it says he emptied himself, in some translations of that Philippian chapter there, Philippians 2, um, 11, forget which verses, but when it says that he emptied himself, what it's saying there is that he chose to not exploit the access and his rights to power and to glory and to honor and humbled himself to serve others who were rejecting him, who eventually despised and rejected him, as Isaiah 53 says, who spat upon him, who drove thorns into his brow and nails through his wrists and ankles and mocked him and gave him the most excruciating death. Your rights are not the most important thing, brothers and sisters. Our rights need to be used for the purpose of serving a world who needs the gospel. And that happens through our proclamation of the gospel and living in line with that gospel. Amen? Remember the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, which could also say humble. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know what you don't see in there? Blessed are the just. Interesting. Romans 12, 18 through 21 says this. If possible, sometimes it's not possible. <laughs> if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. There's a promise. Says the Lord, I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is our calling. This is one of the ways in which we are called to take up our cross. And I confess to you, I don't think this is easy. 
The meaning might be simple, but the application is very hard. But with God's help, all things are possible. This is what that means. Doesn't mean I can win the football game. That might be true as well. <laughs> but when it's called to be Christ-like, we can do it by His grace, with the power of His Holy Spirit. Which brings us to the third and final point of chapter 5. God wants us to have hearts shaped by grace. Look at verses 48 through, verses 30, uh, 43 through 48, excuse me. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And notice this verse here, verse 45, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, on Putin and Mother Teresa, right? If Putin lives next to Mother Teresa, there's not a, a mini cloud that comes and gives her crops water. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Okay? Here's what Jesus is getting at here. And in this final verse, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. These words really summarize what the, the law and this is what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. The law, its true meaning and its proper application to the heart. He's showing us that th this word perfect, it doesn't actually primarily mean complete ethical perfection. What it means, again, coming back to the first point, is a type of wholeness or completeness, a consistency. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. It means that there's no aspect of who God is or what He does that He stops living in accordance with the kind of things that He's revealed in His law. And this gets to the heart of what the law actually does. The Westminster Catechism um, and many other confessions of faith teach us that there's a threefold use for the law of God, referring to the, the Ten Commandments primarily. And here's the threefold use. First of all, what the law does is it exposes for us, it reveals to us the holiness of God, the glory of who God is. But secondly, when you look, just like when you look at a mirror, when you look at His glory and then you realize who you are in light of it, it exposes that no one is righteous. No, not one. It, it, it exposes the complete opposite of that righteousness when we see ourselves in light of it. And what that does is it drives us for a need for this righteousness which we can't find in ourselves, which is where the gospel comes in, the good news of Jesus Christ. It drives us to Christ. And so for those of us who have repented of our sin and, and trusted in His life and death and resurrection, it continues to do that for us. And the law is not just the Ten Commandments. And even for the, the old covenant saints, the law was not just the expression through those 613 applications. The law is also referred to, um, people use the, that word law to refer to the, the whole Old Testament and now the whole Bible as God's law. So when you get up to do your devotions in the morning, here's what you're doing whether you realize it or not. Here's what we're doing. We are looking into the only place in this world 
where the very nature of the God of this world is revealed to the human mind and heart. Is that amazing or what? And here's what it's, it shows to us, just how wonderful he is. And in seeing that, we see the, 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 the light shines on certain darkness in our life and shows us areas that we need to grow. And then we see that there is one who does not fit into that category of Romans 3.10, that there's no one righteous. No, not one. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can truly be perfect, not just in a wholeness sense, but in an ethical, a moral, and a righteous sense. And it is by faith in him that God grants his righteousness to us. Not, not in terms of an infusing or not in terms of we actually become righteous, because then we would be clearly seen as perfect. But there's like an account. Think of God as the judge. And you have an account. But now on our account, God puts for the believer the righteousness of Christ on that account. And this began long before the gospel was proclaimed by Christ. In fact, salvation has always been by faith. If you read Abraham's story, his testimony in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, it says the word of the Lord came to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. And God made some promises. And it says... Abraham believed God and it was credited or counted to him as righteousness. There's a double counting, a double crediting that takes place in salvation. The moment you believe what has happened, there's a transaction that took place. Our unrighteousness, our sin is, has been placed on Jesus Christ. And I want to emphasize this. It is the, the unrighteousness of those who believe. Because everyone who does not believe will pay the full penalty that is deserved for all of us. I recently heard a pastor say it in modern times, it seems like the only way, simple way to get into heaven is just by dying. No. Not all of our loved ones and friends who die have gone to be with Jesus Christ. Some of them who openly rejected him, according to his own words, will spend an eternity under his judgment, which is where we should all be right now. Every single one of us. But by his grace, he offers in Christ the, op the, the, the opportunity to receive this imputation that, as the old hymn puts it, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. This is the heart of the gospel, this double imputation by grace, through faith. And Jesus is showing us, for those of us who are looking to him, that he can start to, to apply this law, not in a burdensome way, not in a way that we have to achieve or help him somehow achieve righteousness. But that we can actually have a sense of freedom living out the righteousness which is ours by faith. I loved uh, the, the way that one, I think, 18th century um, preacher said it. John Charles Ryle, J.C. Ryle, he said this about this section of the Sermon on the Mount. It teaches us our exceeding need of the Lord Jesus Christ's atoning blood to save us. What man or woman upon earth can ever stand before such a God as this and plead, Not 
guilty. Who is there that has ever grown to years of discretion? In other words, who has grown up and has not broken the commandments thousands of times? For there is no one righteous, no, not one. Without a mighty mediator, we should everyone be condemned in the judgment day. Ignorance of the real meaning of the law is one plain reason why so many do not value the gospel and content themselves or are content with a little formal Christianity. It's like Paul says, having a form of godliness but actually denying its power. They content themselves with a little formal Christianity. They do not see the strictness and the holiness of God's Ten Commandments. For if they did, they would never rest until they were safe in Christ. But this is the call of Christ. He has become one of us to live a life of sinless perfection which no one else can. And having achieved the righteousness through His life, He placed Himself on that cross and cried out under the forsakenness of God, but in confident victory, he cried out, it is finished. Tetelestai, which means paid in full. And three days later, he rose again to prove that he was victorious over Satan and sin and death. And we can have eternal life at this moment and the confidence of this eternal life today through faith in him. For he has said to us, come to me, all you who labor and are, are burdened and, and heavy laden, come to me and you will find rest for your weary souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. You will find rest for your souls. So I pray that all of us hearing these words would humble ourselves would recognize who we are before this glorious and holy God and would see the grace of Christ in salvation, in the gospel, and would run to Him in faith and repentance and find that rest even now. Let's pray. Father, once again, we, we come before You.